As Pastor Mike Williams mentioned this morning, we have an uh, opportunity to uh, hear from our brother Machen, or Mac, as you all know him, of course, Strawbridge. Mac, if you don't know him, is a covenant child of this church, has grown up here. His uh, father was a ruling elder for many, many years here at this church. Uh, Mac was a student at University of South Florida, and while he was there, he was actively involved in the RUF campus ministry um, both in his early years as a student participant and then as a leader within that ministry. And through some prodding from the RUF director there, he pursued an internship with RUF. And so he was sent to Belhaven University in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, many from the church supported Mac through that time in his fundraising efforts. He completed a two-year internship at Belhaven and then upon completion of that, um, was given an opportunity to work with high school youth at Madison Heights PCA, also in Jackson, where he works part-time with youth while he's also going to Reform Theological Seminary in Jackson, working on his MDiv degree, his Master's in Divinity. And so it's a privilege to have Mac um, open God's word to us tonight as he exhorts us from the scriptures to give him an opportunity to continue to test those gifts and see how the Lord might be guiding and directing him along that path toward future ministry. All right, well, it's a pleasure to be with you all. Um, if you could please take your Bibles um, and turn to Isaiah 53, verses uh, 10 through 12. And um, if you could all stand, we'll read uh, the Word of God together. And actually, before I read, I will uh, pray uh, for the Holy Spirit's work to illumine our hearts and our minds and to make the Scriptures um, clear to us. In Christ, uh, we come to you asking that you who um, have loved us so well would be kind tonight to bless us with your Holy Spirit that He might illumine our minds and make a hard heart soft and make um, ramblings clear because you are God and you can do that. And so we pray that you would be at work and you would make yourself known this, uh, this uh, evening in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This is the word of God. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Would you please be seated? We are a people who love facts. If your friend informs you that they caught a large fish, 
You're going to want to know the facts surrounding the catch. You want to know how big was the fish, what kind of fishing line were they using, what kind of bait were they using. We are a people who love the facts. If your friend informs you that they've gotten engaged, you want to know uh, the surroundings of the proposal. Did she cry? How did he propose? How nice is the ring? We love facts. And we love facts because facts are grounded in reality. And we know in our hearts that what is true really matters. If we love to know the facts surrounding our friend's big catch or our friend's proposal, how much more ought we to to desire to know the facts surrounding our God and who he has revealed himself to be in his word How much more ought we to desire to know the facts surrounding redemption and the forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus? Well, it was out of a desire to know the facts that around 10 years ago, I went to my dad and I asked him this question. I said, Dad, if Jesus Christ died to save sinners, how were people saved in the Old Testament before Jesus Christ came? And in answering that question, my father sat me down and took me to Isaiah 53 And we read this text together. And what he told me, I will never forget. He said, son, Isaiah, here, 700 years ago, before Jesus Christ took on the flesh, wrote about Jesus Christ because the whole Bible is all really about Jesus. And so... My father informed me of these truths, and I have never forgotten. And tonight, I want us to consider the facts of the gospel together. I want us to consider two facts together tonight. What is the origin of the gospel, and what are the results of the gospel? So first... What is the origin of the gospel? And as we think about the origin of the gospel tonight together, we're going to consider two things. We're going to consider first, the Father's will, and secondly, we're going to consider the Son's willingness. So, where do we see the origin of the gospel in our text tonight? Well, first, the Father's will. Look with me at the start of verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. You see here that we have to ask the question, who is the him that is crushed? And the whole context of Isaiah 53 is that of the suffering servant. And who is the suffering servant? The suffering servant is none other than Jesus Christ himself. And so the him who here is crushed is Jesus. So we might read the verse like this. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Jesus Christ on the cross. Now let us consider this. Why was he crushed? Why did he have to be crushed? Well, because, friends, here tonight, we are sinners in the sight of our holy God, and so sin must be punished. And so he was crushed in our place for our sins. What sort of impact might this have on you and I as we go about our daily lives? Well, you see that your biggest problem and my biggest problem isn't our siblings, it's not our bank accounts, it's not 
um, our flat tires or our rebellious children. Friends here tonight, our biggest problem is the fact that we are sinners in the sight of a holy God. And so, what a relief to know that your biggest problem is solved. We have the biggest problem in the world that is our sin, and it's been taken away through Christ being crushed on the cross in our place. And so, how much more joyful can we be when we go about our day and those really difficult times are not done away with, but we remember with a new perspective that the worst thing that could have ever happened has been done away with. My sins have been taken away. And so, in some senses, right, all those things that so often weigh so heavily on us just dissolve because in light of that, they're really not that important. And so, remember that this text was written 700 years before Jesus Christ took on the flesh. If you're here and you're in Jesus Christ, you're no afterthought in the mind of your God, right? These words were written by the prophet Isaiah 700 years before Jesus Christ took on the flesh. You are not an afterthought in God's mind. You may feel that way, you may think that way, but God knows exactly what he is doing. He crushed his beloved son to redeem us. He knows exactly what he is doing Beloved, you are no afterthought in the mind of your God. Thomas Boston, one of the Puritans, somewhere said this, everyone knows what is most pleasant to him, but God alone knows what is most profitable. And so we've seen the Father's will, but now, brothers and sisters, let us consider the willingness of the Son. We see this most expli explicitly in verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. We see here that the son poured his soul out to death. Some would have accused Christianity as being a religion of what they call divine child abuse. They say, if a father were to send his son to a cross to die, that is abusive. And if that's what the Bible teaches, then the Bible is nothing other than a religion of divine child abuse. But if you look at this verse, that argument has no weight. It dissolves underneath this line here in verse 12 because he poured out his soul to death. You see, to the same degree that the father was in control, to that same degree the son was doing, was doing exactly what he came to do. There was no accident in the events that took place for our salvation in the cross, in his perfect personal perpetual obedience. There were no accidents. This is made very clear, brothers and sisters, if you look at the start of verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. You see, what satisfied Jesus? 
Well, it wasn't the anguish in and of itself, right? That didn't bring him joy, being, uh, having his father's wrath poured out upon him, having nails driven through his hands and through his feet and a crown of thorns upon his head. These things did not bring him joy, right? These things didn't bring him satisfaction in and of themselves. But yet here we read that out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. So what brought him satisfaction? Well, let's think about it like this. Perhaps you're a student, or imagine you are, and you study really hard for an exam, and it's not particularly a subject you enjoy. And so you study very hard for that exam, you read the textbook over and over again, and you go in, and that studying for the exam may be in some way in anguish, right? But the result of getting that A in return may bring you a sense of fulfillment, a sense of satisfaction. So what, again, brought Jesus satisfaction? What satisfied him? If it weren't in the text, you would think it were, un- you would think it could not be true. But what we, what we read here is what brings him joy is the results of his anguish, and the results of his anguish was saving sinners for his glory. You believer, satisfy him in this regard, that he loves to draw sinners to glory through his grace. That satisfies Jesus Christ. So we've read, brothers and sisters, that he poured his soul out. It wasn't passive, right? It wasn't that his soul was being poured out. He was pouring his soul out. Again, our God knows exactly what he is doing. There was no confusion. And so let us look at what are the results of the gospel here in our text. What are some results that we can think about together? Well, first, the doctrine of justification is found here in our text. We see this in verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. This line here, when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Now, what does this mean? Well, they would have been accustomed in these days to making sacrifices for their guilt. And what you would have done in making a guilt offering is you would have taken a, a lamb without spot or blemish to the priest. And the priest would sacrifice this ram on your behalf, in your place. But they knew that rams could never atone for their sins. And so we read of this in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. When we read these words, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so isn't it good news, friends here today, to know that your guilt's removed? But it gets better, because that is only a portion of the doctrine of justification. See, the other side of the doctrine of justification, the next sort of level, if you will, of the doctrine of justification is found for us in verse 11. When we read the words, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, 
make many to be accounted righteous. See, so we are sinners, right? So it's good to know your guilt's removed. But we need to be more than a blank slate. This word accounted is absolutely crucial. We know we are actually sinners. We do not think that we are holy and righteous and good upon our own. We know that we are in fact not that. So this word accounted is so important. We are accounted righteous in the sight of our God. We, we, this, is, this is imputed righteousness, or some theologians call it alien righteousness, right? It comes from without, not from within. It comes from Jesus, not from us. This is the perfect, personal, perpetual obedience of Jesus Christ imputed to your account. This is the hope that the Christian stands upon. This is how we can live and not utterly fall underneath the weight of our guilt and our sin because we know it's been accounted to us. It's like we've done all the works he's done. And think about it like this. It's not even just the external things of the law, right? It's not even just the things people see. It's your very heart motives and affections and desires are accounted as righteous through the righteousness of Christ. I recall in the eighth grade in youth group, we were asked the question, what is justification? And one of the fellow classmates piped up and said, just as if I never sinned. And eighth grade Mac thought that was great. And eighth grade Mac was right in some senses. It's a very helpful, easy way to remember a portion of the doctrine of justification. But justification is more than just as if I never sinned. The doctrine of justification, what we read here, making many to be accounted righteous, is the idea that you are accounted not as just as if I never sinned, but just as if I never sinned and just as if I had perfectly obeyed the law perfectly. Now that is good news. He's more than pardoned us on the hopes that we might maintain our righteousness. He has in fact given us this righteousness in Christ, a righteousness that you and I could never have earned. And so next, let us consider one more doctrine together, brothers and sisters, that we see here as a result of the gospel. And that is the doctrine of adoption, the doctrine of adoption. We see this again in verse 10. When we read the words, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. You see here that we are offspring. We have been brought into the family of God. And many here believe that there's an allusion to the resurrection, because what do we read? He shall see his offspring. And who is the he that shall see? The he that shall see is Jesus, right? And what has happened to Jesus in the former portion of this verse? Well, he was crushed, he was put to grief, and he was made a guilt offering. Guilt offerings, again, were slaughtered rams. He was slaughtered, and yet here he sees. So the argument goes like this, dead men do not see. This character here, which is Jesus, is said to see his offspring. So many here see an allusion to the resurrection. I am among those who believe that there is an allusion here to the resurrection. But what we can say with certainty is this, that he didn't fail on his mission, did he? 
What do we read directly after he shall see his offspring? He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It's not that the will of the Lord may, in fact, prosper in his hands. The will of the Lord has a pretty good chance of prospering in his hands. No, what do we read? The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, period, full stop. He accomplished what he came to do. He wanted to draw a people to himself and have them into his family. And this is exactly what he's done. See, man may set up many missions and fail. He may have many goals and see those goals fail. And they do not always come to fruition, do they? But when God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit in eternity past set out the plan to save sinners to themselves, when that all took place, there was no failing. He has not failed in his mission. And that's what we see here. His offspring, he has drawn in and he prolongs his days and the will of the Lord prospers in his hand. Now, consider the reality that of course here on earth, Adoption can be a great process, right? If someone wants to bring someone into their family, it's a large emotional um, uh, endeavor. It's a great financial endeavor. But consider the cost to bring you and I, if you're here and you know Jesus Christ, into the family of God. What 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 have we heard? What have we read? The Father willingly sent His Son the son willingly came down and was crushed that you and I might not be crushed by the weight of our sin and guilt for eternity in the sight of our holy God in hell. Consider what has been done that you and I might have the wonderful, insurmountable privilege of being children of the living God. Of course, as you all here know in the New Testament, right? Jesus calls us his, he says he is our elder brother. Such language, such familial language is so encouraging for the believer to consider. It costs infinitely more to adopt us into the family of God than any man has ever paid to adopt someone into their family. And, of course, when you consider who we are, it makes the adoption all the more amazing. Now, someone here may be thinking to themselves, what privileges do you speak of? My bills keep getting larger. My spouse's infirmities keep becoming more and more clear to me. My children are consistently rebelling. What what privileges do you speak of? Well, look with me at the start of verse 12. This offspring, which we are in Christ, have received a great deal of privileges. Verse 12, Therefore I would divide him a portion with the many, And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The start of this verse, right, you get this image that Jesus Christ, when he came, he came and was victorious. And what has he done with his victory? Just like a king on earth does with his victory, he would take the spoils, right? He would take the victory um, earnings and he would give them out to his people. And so we read in verse 12 that we are the recipients of the spoil of Jesus Christ's victory. And what, have, what are some specifics? Well, right, death has been put to death through the death of Christ. 
Your sins have been atoned for. We have, the, um, we have the backing and the grounding to fight against sin because Christ Jesus has fought against sin for us. We have all these privileges and according to the New Testament, we have all the, the blessings of the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And of course, at the end of verse 12, we read that we have an intercessor. We have someone coming between you and I. We have someone mediating for you and I, not just with our prayers, but yes, with our prayers, but also for our atonement, for our forgiveness. And so it's not wishful thinking. It's not hoping against hope tonight to believe that you're extremely privileged in Christ Jesus. It's reality, it's fact, it's truth. Brothers and sisters, as we wrap things up, I just wanna bring us a couple of specific applications. And the first of these is dependence. You and I, if we're in Christ, need to live with a dependence. Not just when we've, by the grace of God, seen a glaring error in our life, a glaring sin in our life. Yes, we need to go to him then on our knees and say, will you forgive me for this sin that I have committed against you? But more so, even I think we forget that we're dependent upon him all the time. When you open your Bible to read it, don't rely on yourself. I cannot rely on myself. I must be dependent. That's, that's the reason we have a prayer of illumination. That's the reason I prayed before I read the text tonight. This is why we pray before we read God's word because we're saying, if I was trying to, to dissect these words on my own two feet, it would fail. So we must live with dependence, brothers and sisters in the Lord. We must, we must be depending on him when we're singing hymns, depending upon him as we're going into the workplace tomorrow, depending upon him as we go to classes, or children, depend upon him as you struggle to love your parents well, admit that I have, I'm not doing this well, Jesus, will you help me? We have to live completely dependent lives. This is a mark of the Christian. It reminds me of a great story about one of the Puritans, Walter Marshall, he, he struggled. He was, a, he was a preacher of the word and he struggled um, over the state of his soul. He was anxious about the state of his soul. And so he went to a man named Richard Baxter, but Richard Baxter uh, was not able to give him the peace of conscience that he was searching for. And then Walter Marshall went to a man by the name of Thomas Goodwin, another Puritan. And he went to Thomas Goodwin and he pours out his heart to Thomas Goodwin. He mentions specific sins that were plaguing him. And listen to the way Thomas responded. I think this is so pastoral and insightful for us. He says to Marshall, who's just poured out his soul to him, you have forgotten to mention the greatest sin of all, the sin of unbelief. You do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to sanctify your natures. You see, we don't come to Jesus Christ because he's forgiven us from our sins and then quit relying on him. Paul talks about this in the book of Galatians. Our entire lives must be marked by his continual work within us, relying on his spirit. Having begun in the spirit, will you continue in the flesh? See, so Paul so encourages you and I to just continue to live in light of this forgiveness. But one more 
application from the word of, uh, from the text tonight, I believe, is this. Let us ponder the facts. You recall how we started and considered that we love facts, do we not? We want to know how big the fish was. We want to know, did she cry? We want to know these things. Because again, we know facts are grounded in reality, and we know what's true really matters. So let us ponder the facts. Throughout our days, maybe we would consider the wonder that the Father would send His Son, the awe that the Son would willingly condescend, an infinite condescension to redeem us from our infinite sins. Would we consider truths that are so profound, such as justification, that goes beyond a mere removal of guilt, which is amazing in and of itself, but in actual righteousness imputed to us? Would we be amazed at the reality that God would adopt us into his family, sinners like you and like me? These facts are worth pondering, and I think pondering these truths will allow us and be an encouragement to our spiritual lives. If we ever think we've thought too long or too hard about the gospel, pride is welling up within us, and moral failure is just around the corner. Let us never tire of pondering this amazing gospel. Consider, concerning these types of thinking and this idea of the importance of facts, J. Gressel Machen said this, what I need first of all is not exhortation but a gospel, not directions for saving myself, but knowledge of the way God has saved me. Have you any good news for me? That is the question that I ask of you. I know your exhortation will not help me, but if anything has been done to save me, will you not tell me the facts? The gospel is good news because its message is unlike any other. It is a message grounded in history. It is not just some man-made idea about some really nice guy who lived 2,000 years ago. It is news. It is a fact about real events that took place in history. It is the story of redemption. It is the story about how the holy God saves sinners. The gospel is the good news that God saves sinners. May we live in light of the facts of the gospel. Would you pray with me? Our holy, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God, in you do we live, move, and have our being, and what a joy it is for all those who know the weight of their sin and know something of the precious price that was paid that we might not bear that load any longer. Thank you, almighty God, that we are saved not with precious things that the world finds of infinite value like silver and gold, but that we're saved by something that truly is of infinite value, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. O oh, Spirit of God, would you who soften hearts, soften hearts here tonight and help all of us by your grace to look more and more like the Son, Jesus Christ, and to be more and more amazed with what you have done to save sinners who could never have saved themselves.
In Christ's name I pray. Amen.